0: Do you know what time it is? It's supernatural story time. And if you're easily scared, and even if you're not, there's only one thing left to do. Just turn off the lights, because these are stories that you listen to only Only in the dark. Weird Tales from the Woods, Volume 2, Story 1. My story isn't really mine so much as my dad's. We had a two-floor townhouse with my parents' bedroom having a window to the back of the house. Downstairs, we had a sliding glass door below their room with those blinds you could tug on the cord and they flip open instantly. One night, our yellow lab named Max started going ballistic barking. He almost never barks. Even if a stranger walked in the house, he would lick their hand. My dad ran downstairs and Max was viciously growling at the sliding glass door. He flicked open the blinds, saw a sigh, strung out, tall, lanky guy, just standing there inches from the glass looking in. My pop went for the twelve gauge and when he got back to the door, the guy was gone. Next night, he keeps a shotgun beside their bed loaded with home protection rounds. You know nylon pellets that will make you wish you were dead. Sure enough, Max starts going off in the middle of the night. My dad quietly opened a window, and the creepy hippie guy is back. He put the shotgun out the window and let the chamber close with a semi-auto. The guy looked up and took off, never to be seen again. I've had plenty of feelings of dread of being watched when out in the woods hunting. The scariest moment I've had in the woods was when I got separated from the group I had gone four-wheeling with. This was the middle of nowhere Pennsylvania. If you turned a headlight off, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. I did exactly that turned everything off and listened, hoping to hear the other guys. This is where I really started to poop on myself. It was dead silent. I'm now lost in an area that I've never been to before, and I can't even hear one four-wheeler, let alone the other six. I decided the path I was on looked well-traveled and decided to follow it. After riding for about ten minutes still with thick forest on either side. I was worried I'd run out of gas. We had ridden about 10 miles to get to the area I got lost at. After writing for what felt like eternity, I suddenly came up on the entire group taking a break. What an effing relief. Story number two. I've had plenty of feelings of dread of being watched when out in the woods hunting. There have been many times in my past while as a civilian hunting, as a member of a military unit or hiking, that these feelings would come over me. As a platoon leader leading a recon patrol, it was just not me who felt the heaviness in the air. We were all combat vets and had seen our share. Some of us noticed at first, and it was not long before all felt the same. A quick halt was called, and it was decided this was more than a case of nerves. My patrol moved out into the bush and, and we executed a 90-degree turn and dog-legged back into our trail and set a hasty ambush. Nothing was seen that night, and we stayed on alert until dawn. With the dawn, the feeling was gone, but all of us felt a nagging that somehow we had missed a terrible thing happening to us. The rest of the mission was uneventful without contact, and our recon was a success. Yet the feeling remained for a while. The locals told tales of these areas, as not being safe, and they doubted the enemy would go there either. This was not the only time in the military, just the one I'm willing to say something about now. There also have been times out hunting and hiking that you cross an area that doesn't feel right or makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. One time I remember hunting on a friend's land in Georgia when this feeling came over me. Even armed as I was, I backed out of the area and left looking over my shoulder. After a short distance, at a good defensible site, I waited and watched. Nothing. I left before the sunset. My friend assured me no one else was hunting the property that he or his father knew of. Both father and son had spoken of these feelings also at different times of the year and in different areas of the farm. It's a feeling I've had a few times while walking point as a fire team leader. You just know something is not right. Maybe those of us who hunted at an early age. I went into the military, were more prone to sense this danger as the ones who were more sensitive to it. My father was from Mississippi, but he should have been from Missouri. The show-me state? He was a World War II vet, with 22 years' service in the infantry, and as an MP after the war. After Granada, my father and I spoke of things he never spoke of before, that only someone who had been and seen can speak of. In that moment, my father and I bonded as we never had before. I became a member of an exclusive club that few see or want to enter. Those who have been there will know, and those who have not, and doubt, can never be shown until it happens to them. Next story. I'm not an Oprah fan, but I caught one episode about kidnappings and how to protect yourself on a fluke. According to the show, I am the prime target. It seems since I'm about... 5 feet 2 inches and weigh about 105 to 110 pounds with waist-length hair that is almost always in a or ponytail. At the time, I had my own baby with me in her car seat, so I was easily distracted. I had been visiting my sister-in-law at the hospital after she had a baby. It got to be dark and I needed to leave, but the skywalk was closed by then. I crossed the street, entered the Wellick garage, and hit the elevator button. I got on, hit the number 2, And this fairly big man jumped in as the doors are closing. He felt weird. My mind was racing and the only thing I had on me were my keys and the baby. I nonchalantly got the keys out and wrapped my hands around it for a makeshift poker. The doors opened and he just waited. So I got off and he followed me. I could feel him. I walked quickly to put a bit of distance between us. At what I felt was the last second I turned around and looked him in the face. He got this oh shit expression and stopped dead in his tracks. I said, oh, I forgot something in a tone that sounded lighthearted enough, but I think I may have a look because he took a step back. I walked right past him, went to the first floor and went back up to the second floor to find he was gone, got to my car, set the baby down to unlock it when I heard and felt the vehicle. "'I turned to see a plain white utility van "'and him staring at me "'with the most hateful look on his face "'as he went by. "'I hurried the baby into the car "'and got the hell out of there. "'As soon as I could, I pulled over "'and got control of myself. "'What was I thinking? "'Why didn't I get security? "'What if he'd block me and grab me? "'What if he'd grab my baby? "'The thought made me sick. "'Why did I watch that dumb show anyway? "'But perhaps God wanted me prepared.' Maybe Oprah was just trying to scare the crap out of me, but I tend to lean more towards the former explanation. Next story. Around 20 years ago in El Paso, Texas, my parents were at a friend's house having dinner when the doorbell rang. It was another friend with a panic look on his face. He had come back from a Boy Scout camping overnighter type thing with his son somewhere in the northeast part of town. I guess he stayed one night and left his son with a group for a longer outing. It was nighttime when he came back over Trans Mountain Road, which passes over the small Franklin Mountain Range, connecting the far west side of El Paso to the northeast. On his way back over, he saw something black in the distance, with something smaller next to him. The closer he got, it became clear it was a priest walking a dog. When he got close enough, the priest moved very quickly in front of the car, and he hit the priest and the dog. He came to a screeching halt, which is dangerous with steep drop-offs over the side of the road, put the car park, got out, and could not see anyone anywhere. Nothing. I don't know many details beyond that, so I'm guessing he got to a phone, no cell phones, since this was around the 1990s, and called the police. When he got to the house, he was freaked out, and he swore up and down he hit a priest and his dog on Trans Mountain Road. Now, here's the weird coincidence. A lifelong friend was driving back from Las Cruces, New Mexico, to El Paso one night when it was pouring rain. This was about 20 years ago. He was an I-10, and it passed right by Trans Mountain Road on the west side of town. It was late, and there weren't many cars on the road when he saw something black walking up ahead on the shoulder of the highway. As he approached the figure, it began to slowly turn around and when he got close enough, he saw it was a priest holding a dog. At this point, the figure was close enough that it actually threw the dog at my friend's truck. My friend says he was so freaked out. He screamed out, stomped on the brakes, and skidded, almost flipping his truck. He came to a stop, got out in the rain, looked around, and could not see anything, anyone, or any dog. The story stands out for several significant reasons. One, one, Neither of these people were known or had a reputation for dishonesty or making stories up. They both claimed they were not under the influence of anything. Two, they don't know each other. Had never met, to my knowledge, I've never met since. So one could not have exchanged his experience with the other. Three, the significant similarity in what they saw. Not only a man, but a priest with a dog. Four, there's no folklore in that region that I have found Fitting the description above, that could have planted a seed in their imagination, creating some childhood fear that manifested itself later, or played tricks on their minds. In other words, there are no ghost stories about people in that region that could have influenced what they saw or imagined, but they both saw pretty much the same thing. Now, that tells me that there's got to be some ghost story out there that's just never been told next story. I'm heavily into backpacking and I mostly go by myself since it's such a pain to get people to go with me. My favorite place is to go northwest of El Paso in the volcanic areas around Aden Crater. This is in New Mexico southwest of Las Cruces and roughly 20 miles or so from the Mexican border. This happened in March of 2004. I was back in El Paso on spring break from the professional school I was attending. I'd planned to go camping for most of the week. Unfortunately, my jeep didn't want to cooperate. I usually drive out myself and park, but my jeep did not want to start. Since I only had a few days, I decided to have my parents drive me out the dirt roads as far as we could get in a car and then drop me off and come back in several days. So we made it out County Road A017 pretty far out until we had a spot in the road which was flooded out. I usually try to stay away from the roads because I feel much safer that way. We had actually almost gotten carjacked by some illegals in the same area a year or two after this, but that's another story. The weather was fairly good, but I had not been out there for months, and I didn't know whether or not there would be water that I could filter into cattle tanks, so I decided to cache some gallon water jugs by the drop-off point so that I could make a couple of trips to hollow water over to base camp area. Unfortunately, this looks like what the illegals do. Right where I was dropped off, there was a dirt road, which looked like it followed a gas pipeline, and it went roughly southwest at a 90-degree angle from the main road before turning southeast. My plan was to generally head off towards a well cattle tank corral marked as Norwood Well on the USGS quad named Afton. I'd given my parents a general area of that quad where I planned on hiking around, but I was just going out to relax and not make any huge distances, and I had no concrete plan on what I was going to do except for relaxing. The area is covered by volcanic lava, flows, and general desert. I usually only brought a handgun with me, but this time I brought my new Marlin 336, which I had customized with a synthetic stock, excess ghost ring sights, and a scout rail, which had a cheap red dot sight, which I removed for this trip, and a buttstock ammo cuff. While I had a carrying strap on it, I believe in having it accessible, so I was carrying it in my hands. I started off walking slightly in the bush line off of the dirt road to minimize the sign that I was leaving. When I reached the area where the dirt road headed southeast, I hopped over the dirt ruts to try and conceal my footprints in the grasses in between the tire ruts, and then tried to carefully make my way over the lava flows to conceal my tracks. I was being overly cautious because this was so close to a major road, and I didn't want any illegals or the Border Patrol deciding to surprise me. I was perhaps a quarter mile into the lava flows when I came up on top of a flow and saw a very nice buck, perhaps 40 yards away, on the top of the next lava hill. We both froze and stared at each other for a few seconds, and then I whipped the lever action up and sighted in through the ghost ring. I pulled the hammer back and then carefully squeezed the trigger. I had a nice surprise break and the hammer clicked down on the cross safety. I dry fired on an empty chamber with the safety still on. I thought to myself, I could have had you. Then I put the rifle down and wished I had brought my camera. The buck stared back at me for a few seconds longer and then slowly started to move away. I had been following a rough compass bearing toward the well, but I figured that I would use the opportunity to practice my tracking skills, which I had been trying to develop over the past few years. So I went forward and found the tracks. The buck was now long out of my sight. The tracking was relatively easy in the soft earth, in between the lava flows, and I managed to keep on the trail for 1.4 miles before I lost the trail. I decided to camp right there. I was more than a mile from the road, and that was my standard for being far enough away that I figured that no one would stumble on my camp. I normally button-hook into where I planned to camp and watch my trail for a bit before settling in. Slightly paranoid, yes, but I believe in being cautious. I also turned around and walked backwards every so often as I hiked for two reasons. One, for the obvious reason of watching my back, and two, I read about it once in a book on orienting as a way of checking what the black azimuth looks like and I found it to be a very helpful technique. I usually go cross-country to maintain my map and compass skills and I find it fun. I set up my tent and relax for the rest of the day and that night. The road where I was dropped off parallels a railroad track and I heard the various trains that passed that night but that was it. I didn't hear any other vehicles or ATVs or any helicopters. It was a totally uneventful night. So I decided that I would empty my pack and go back and pick up the cached water bottles the next morning. I used my GPS to get the bearing directly back to the water, and I moved off. I started to be careful again with my tracks when I was within 400 to 500 meters of the roads. I made it to the water and shoved the gallon jugs into my backpack quickly. I was nervous being this close to the main road, and I tried to get back into what I thought was the safety of the lava flowers. I did not see or hear anyone or any vehicles, I didn't see any sign of foot or vehicle traffic around the cachet site. So I decided to be lazy and follow my own footprints back to the camp instead of following compass directions only. Since I'd gone straight from my tent to the cachet site, I had not seen my trail of prints on the way to pick up the water. I picked up my tracks and was just making my way along, I walked into an area between lava flows that was a couple of hundred meters wide with soft soil. My trail was quite distinct and I was in condition white until I looked down and saw another pair of footprints following my footprints, which were following the deer tracks. I stopped in my tracks and stared at them. My boots are Merrell's and they have a very distinctive Vibram sole. The tracks following mine were clearly cowboy boots. I looked back. The boot tracks literally appeared out of thin air. I backtracked and looked around in several concentric circles. I didn't find any sign of vehicle tracks or any sign of a helo. This was within a mile of my tent, and I would have heard a helo. I've had experiences with helos in this area, but that is another story. I stopped and looked around, trying to be quiet as my mind raced and I gripped the marlin tighter. Nothing. It was a normal, clear day. No sounds at all. My heart was racing. After waiting a bit, I followed the tracks. They followed my tracks until the area where I lost the deer tracks. I stopped and looked around. The area where I had lost the deer prints was in an area where the lava flows were closer together, and the area in between was overgrown with various desert grass and scrub. I looked, and I could see my tent about 200 meters away. My blood ran cold as I realized that the track stopped in an area where whomever it was must have been able to see my tent. I must have been sitting in my tent, reading a book, or whoever it was stood watching me. I was truly scared at this point. I had been camping by myself for years, and I had been in many situations which would have scared city people to death. Now I was shaking. I tried to think of what to do. I figured that I needed to know if this person was still around. I had my pair of trekking poles strapped to my pack, so I stuck one into the ground with some blaze orange tape wrapped around the handle where the last cowboy boot print was located. I took the other pole, tried to use it to mark the stride, and find the next print. No luck. It was possible that whoever made the tracks could have used the lava to conceal his tracks when he saw the tent. So I started moving in concentric circles again around the pole stuck in the ground. I couldn't find any other signs anywhere. I was really scared and shaking, trying to keep one eye on the ground and one eye on the surrounding terrain, expecting to see or hear something I didn't want to. I dug my cell phone out and checked to see if I had a signal, and I didn't. I went to the tent and decided to sit and think. What to do? Stay or go? Pick up and just leave? Or stay out? Or run like a little girl? If I had the jeep, I would have just relocated. But I didn't. I always felt safe in the lava fields, because the chances of someone stumbling on my tracks were astronomically slim. But here it happened. I wasn't paying attention, and I dumped the marlin into my thermo and it flipped over, and the ghost ring poked a hole into my inflatable sleeping pad. Crap. I checked, and I didn't bring the repair kit. Should I chicken out and leave? Who could have found my tracks? The obvious danger areas were the roads, and I was careful, and I didn't see any sign of someone on my trail. The tracks just appeared in the middle of soft sand with no rocks within 100 to 200 meters and at least 400 meters or more away from the dirt road. No one could have just appeared. I didn't hear any vehicles at all. I tried to think if I'd seen any Border Patrol agents wearing cowboy boots recently. This wasn't 20 years ago, and I thought that most agents wore regularly combat-type boots. I looked down and felt my now limp sleeping pad. It felt like a bad symbol of my manhood at that moment. This was crazy. It wasn't some dark and stormy night. It was the middle of a perfectly clear, bright blue day, and I wanted to run away like a little girl. I sat and convinced myself that I couldn't sleep without a sleeping pad. So I made a decision to leave. I packed up and started to move towards the road, getting to higher ground to get a cell signal and I called home to have my parents come out. It took several hours of waiting hiding underneath the creosote bush 400 meters or so from the main dirt road, watching the road through my binoculars and checking around every few seconds. It was a very long wait, but it was thankfully uneventful. So, what happened? I don't know what the heck happened. I'm still sumped as to how footprints can appear out of thin air. It was the most frightened I've ever been, including when I've had people point a gun at me in the couple of times that I've been in full-blown fights for my life. Next story. My next story took place roughly 2.2 miles southwest of my last story. This is a volcanic cinder cone, which I believe is called the Gardner Cones. It is a roughly triangular formation of three cinder cones together with an area of sand and dirt in the middle. One of the three peaks is actually a cinder cone which looks exactly like a Hawaii-type volcano. This happened probably in the late 1990s. I used to go out to this place and park my Jeep about one and a half miles southeast of the cones. It was a little stand of mesquite trees with a cattle tank and feeding area and an almost purpose-built parking space for my old Jeep. I would pull in among the mesquite trees and toss a camo tarp and camo net over my jeep and you could walk past my jeep and never see it. I am totally paranoid about leaving my vehicle out there. I always wondered whether it would be there when I got back. For this trip, I had planned a fairly strenuous 18-mile round trip from where I had parked my jeep going northwest to Aden Crater. I had spent enormous amounts of my time while in college driving around out here and I had mapped out where all the old jeep trails and cattle trails and cattle tanks and wells were located. I was a biology-slash-ecology field worker as a student, and I had extensive experience with GPS mapping and orienting. So I had a number of waypoints along the way where I knew I could filter water. I don't remember exactly what time of year this was, but I don't think it was very hot, but it was usually bright and clear blue days. I made my way out, and it is fairly rough volcanic terrain. I made it three quarters of the way to Aiden Crater, and I was stopped to take a short break. I needed to go over a barbed wire fence, so I had my pack off. I was just standing there, letting the sweat cool on my back, with my backpack covered, and I was looking around. Again, there was absolutely no reason to freak out, but I did. As a solo backpacker, I've had this experience many times before and it usually passes quickly. That feeling of being in the middle of nowhere and just getting freaked out. The area has deer and tons of coyotes, the four-legged kind, and rabbits and lizards, but no predators that would have given me that sense of being watched. While this was within 20 miles of the border, back then, I'd never seen any illegals or druggies or even any Border Patrol agents. The main roads were fairly well-traveled, and many people would go out there, but... I had never actually seen another person while I was hiking away from the roads. I was in the middle of the lava fields, and there were not even any cattle trails within a square kilometer. So I stood and was quiet, tried to figure out what was wrong. I heard a usual train going by on a couple of tracks just a little bit north of me. I could hear the vague sounds of a helicopter down south near the border, but there wasn't anything else. I looked towards Aden Crater. It was probably less than two miles away. What to do? Press on and hope the feeling would go away? I looked back the way I came, and I could see the gardener combs. That was my safe place. I'd spent many, many nights there before. After a few minutes, I said the heck with it, and shrugged back into my pack. I took a quick bearing on the combs, even though they were prominent enough to clearly see my way, but it always made me feel better to concentrate on my compass work. So I headed back. I thought I was nuts to turn around and go back and do more miles than I planned on that day, but I felt very confident to be heading back to my place. It was a long slog back there. I'd passed the cones within a couple of hundred meters on the first time out, and now I was tired and leaning hard on my trekking poles as I went up the sides of the cones and into the middle area. I was tired, but I felt good. It was a very sheltered area, and I always felt safe in between the three cones, I made camp and had my dinner and settled down for the night. I did my customary sitting on top of the one cone to watch the sunset and then went and settled into my sleeping bag. I had picked up the custom of listening to my shortwave radio at night when I camped, and I probably read a paper book back for a bit as well before falling asleep. Back then, I wasn't too terribly concerned about my safety when camping. I had my Glock 23 that I carried in my pack, and I set that out next to my sleeping bag. I had the general rule to always camp away from major terrain features, roads, hills, water tanks, etc. But the cones were my exception because it was my area where I had first camped alone, and I have been coming here for years at this point. I was in my trusty Kelty Vortex 2, and I felt asleep. The only problem that night was the sound of the helicopter getting progressively closer. I thought that it was going to keep me up. That night. After sleeping for an undetermined amount of time, I was woken up suddenly. I'm always a light sleeper while camping, and now I was awake and wondering what woke me up. I grabbed the Glock, and I was lying there in my sleeping bag, tucked into a fetal position when the night turned bright white, and there was an overwhelming amount of noise. Dirt was flying around the tent. The fly in the inner tent were violently shaking, and the noise and hurricane-like winds were buffeting me, I had my eyes clenched shut against the flying dirt and debris and a death grip on the gun, and I thought, you have got to be kidding me. The sound of the U.S. Customs Blackhawk and the blinding light of the night sun searchlight became even worse as I wondered how far down on top of me the helo would come. I didn't think that they would land in the area in between the cones, but they got damn close. I froze and thought that if I moved with a gun in my hand, I would be dead. I don't know if they said anything over the speakers because the sound and downdraft were overpowering. Then it stopped as they gained altitude and left. I looked at my watch. It was something like 2 or 3 a.m. I was wide awake and shaking in disbelief. I thought, to hell with this, and started breaking camp as quickly as I could. I set my compass bearing to my GPS and started bushwhacking in the darkness, afraid to put on my headlamp. I managed to do my best overnight compass navigation and managed to hit my Jeep right on without an offset and started the long drive home. I still have the tent and the poles have abandoned them from the force of the Black Hawk's downdraft. At least I can say that the Kelty can stand up to near hurricane winds. And I was never bored when I go camping. Next story. The house I'm in right now has been my family's home since I was in high school. My parents bought it in an estate sale, and it is verifiable that the old woman who lived here died in my parents' bedroom, but we have never even remotely had anything strange happen, that is, until last Thursday night. My mother and I have been caring for my father for the past three years. He suffered a series of strokes the month after he retired, and he's been heading downhill rapidly since then. He was bedridden, and you probably can't imagine the hell of caring for someone like that. Back in August, my father was obviously close to going, and we called EMS. He coded it in the back of the ambulance, but was revived. We had already discussed in death what his wishes were, and we had the necessary legal documents, and we made the decision to pull life support. My father hung on for almost 24 hours before passing away. At the time of his death, I was holding his hand and watching him. He was covered by a blanket except for his arms and head. I watched the color begin to drain from his skin, starting at his fingers and working up his arm. The color change continued up, under where the blanket was covering his shoulder, and picked up again at his neck and then to the top of his head. He went from a very pale white to a weird yellow color. I found it very strange and mentioned it to the nurse, who crossed herself, and it was obvious that my father was the first patient she saw die. I never witnessed anything like it in any of the other people, whom I have seen die. After his death, we've had a bunch of very bizarre, non-paranormal events happen, which I can't really get into. My mother, who watches all the dumb ghost shows on TV, and I've commented many times that if ever there was a time for someone to come back as a ghost, this would be that time. However, nothing has ever really happened. I've completely jacked up my back from moving my father around and I'm popping various pills, for that. None of my pills makes me high, but my one muscle-relaxing completely knocks me out at night. I'm talking; I fall asleep at the drop of a hat, and I'm completely out for the next ten to twelve hours. I don't dream at all. I go out and wake up, and feel like I was out for five minutes, but it was hours. I'm saying all this to make the point that I do not dream, and I do not wake up suddenly from a dream and not being able to distinguish between a dream and reality. There was one bizarre experience, several weeks back, that I do not think was related to my dad. I made my first communion I'm Roman Catholic back in 1981 or 82 while I was a student at a Catholic school. My teacher was a little old Mexican nun named, I think, Sister Teresa. She was a little tiny old woman, maybe four and a half feet tall, weighing 90 pounds, she gave me a homemade Christmas tree decoration made out of a lifesaver package with yarn, made into a little figure. We have had this decoration since then, and as far as I know, this was our other decoration in a box out in the garage. I woke up from sleeping and looked at my window. My windows are covered by horizontal blinds, and one of the slats is broken on one end so I can see outside saw a pair of human eyes looking in at me. And then the lifesaver figure was pulled up through the broken slat and then up the blinds and disappeared into the gap between the top of the blinds and the bottom of the top edge of the window frame. I popped up and pointed my bedside handgun with lights at the window and nothing. I thought that I had dreamt it, although there is the fact that I don't freaking dream anymore. It got even more Bizarre when I told my mom and she told me that she had found the same ornament in one of her dresser drawers the day before. Apparently, she had seen it while doing something out in the garage and brought it into the house without telling me. Bizarre, but I just wrote off as weird happening due to the stress that we were under at that time. Which brings me to Thursday night. I'd pop my nighttime pills early so I could get to sleep early. I'd done my usual zonking out without really knowing it, but I woke up in maybe an hour. This is very unusual, since my pills really knocked me out. I never wake up like that. I looked at my bedroom door, and I saw a figure in my bedroom doorway. I couldn't see the face, just an outline, but the figure was leaning to one side with the right hand on the doorknob and was dressed in a polo shirt and khaki pants. Basically, that was exactly the same clothes that my father used to wear to work, and the way that the figure was leaning on the doorknob was the exact same way that my father would do when I was younger, and he would come home from work and come down to my bedroom to see what I was doing. My father was in a severe motorcycle accident when I was younger, and he limped and leaned over to his right side. I was honestly quite freaked out, but I looked away and back, and nothing was there. So I figured that I had imagined it "'and I lay back down and closed my eyes again. "'Then I felt pressure on my bed "'and I thought my dog or cat "'had come up on the bed "'and I reached down to pet them "'but there was nothing. "'I sat up and used my bedside flashlight "'to look at the end of the bed "'where I have a footstool "'to help the animals up on the bed. "'Nothing. "'So again I thought I was imagining things "'and I lay back down and closed my eyes again. "'Then The pressure came back on the bed and it felt exactly like someone put their hands on my bed and pushed down very hard, shaking the whole bed. I've had the same bed for probably 15 years and I've never had anything like that happen before. I freaked pretty badly and kept my eyes closed and said some prayers that it was okay for my father to leave because I was going to take care of my mom. It stopped. I yelled out for my mom and she woke up and came over and I told her what happened. Thinking about it now, it is almost the same as my experience back in high school where I saw ghosts and it was like an instantaneous flash of a person and then it was gone, and I wondered if I had really seen anything or if I had imagined it. I don't really know. I really don't know if I actually believe in ghosts or not, but I'm not the sort of person who really sees stuff. I just don't know, but it is actually difficult to even talk about this since I don't want to see them because it makes me feel like a nut. So there you go. Yes, my ghost story.